Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Marissa Neff is interested in where cultures intersect. She's chronicled conflicts at the Haitian-Dominican border as a photographer. She traveled to Havana with a band exploring the connections between Cuban music and Louisiana jazz as a radio producer. She's worked as a DJ who says her inspiration is equatorial beats. We'll ask her exactly what that means. And she spent years studying Brazilian dance. Now Marisa is studying a new kind of connection. She's directed her first film titled, This is National Wake. It's a multiracial band from South Africa. And by actually existing together as a band and living under the same roof, they're breaking the law. It's a documentary about a multiracial punk band in South Africa during apartheid. It's playing Monday, January 16th at the Miami Jewish Film Festival. It's no surprise Marissa is interested in these cultural connections. She was raised by a mom from Barbados and a Russian Jewish dad. They lived in a brownstone on the Upper East Side of New York City in the 1970s. And she grew up on possibly the most diverse street in America, Sesame Street. Welcome, Marissa. Hello. <laughs> so, so you grew up dancing with Mr. Hooper, right? You were a you were a child actor at, at some point where you were uh, you were on Sesame Street. I was on Sesame Street, but I I wasn't an actor. I my mom worked for the show for decades. Um, she started working at the show in its early days. Um, she was a marketing executive there for a long, long time, and um, so I was just surrounded by Sesame Street as I was growing up, um, both in, you know, spending time at her office and spending time on set. And um, yes, I did dance with Mr. Hooper as a kid. <laughs> the proof is on YouTube. What, um, and we've seen it. We've seen it. People should definitely YouTube it. It's, uh, and we'll, we'll try to put a link in our, in our show too as well. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's interesting because, like I said, Sesame Street uh, technically was you know, one of maybe the most diverse street in America at the time because it was really bringing in people from different cultures and what have you. And I, I'm curious what it was like for you to, to grow up seeing that, seeing that as kind of like an example of, of, you know, what America really looked like and being put out there that way. Yeah. I mean, I would say that it was, it just felt it was the norm for me growing yeah. up. It was just what I was growing up around and within. Um, but my mom, she, you know, part of her her career and part of her kind of mission in working for Sesame Street was, you know, she was mainly working on books and advertising and and that kind of thing, but to to increase representation in in those arenas. And you know, it was a kind of a time. This is the seventies we're talking about. And it was a time when, you know, diversity kind of meant including kids with dark hair. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and my mom, you know, being of African origins from the, the Caribbean, she, you know, made it her mission to, to include kids of all colors in, in advertising for, for Sesame Street. So she had to kind of go toe to toe with the various vendors and, and, uh, companies that they were working with and licensing products to, to make that happen. Um, so it was just kind of. I don't know. Like I say, that was the norm of what I was growing up within and around. 
And, and your home life uh, reflected, uh, reflected that a little bit. Uh, it sounds like your mom being from Barbados, your, your dad, uh, he's uh, Russian Jewish. Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that's a really interesting combination to grow up in, in a household. It is. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents met in the sixties in New York. Um, and my dad was born in, in New York, in the States. And, um, but my, my grandparents came, were Ashkenazi or, you know, they were both Ashkenazi mm -hmm. Jewish and came from what's now Poland and Moldova. And, um, yeah, but my, my parents were part of a very kind of multicultural forward thinking scene. Um, so they, um, yeah, they met and connected and that, that was the, the, the group that they were, you know, around. And, um, so I don't know. And I mean, how much, I, how much it, like, uh, well, I'm curious how much like, how much like Sesame Street was the street that you grew up on, your your brownstone on the Upper East Side? <laughs> the street that I grew up on was was not that much like Sesame Street. <laughs> um, so I grew up on 75th Street on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, okay. um, down the street from the old Whitney Museum, and spent a lot of time at the museum. Went to PS6, a couple blocks away, and um, yeah, but it was it was mostly white still at, at the time. So we were kind of oddities. Uh, in the neighborhood, I would say. Um, in fact, Jackie O's mother like lived across the street from us. Oh my and gosh. I think it was very, you know, so her apartment kind of looked into our apartment. It's kind of not a very wide street. And, and uh, I think she was kind of my mom, according to my mom, she was kind of curious. About <laughs> she's she's kind of like, look over. Peeping Tom you know? looking through the windows, Jackie O. That's so funny. <laughs> Quizzically. <laughs> um, did I, but, yeah. Did no, I we read correctly? There Sorry. Did I read correctly that uh, that David Bowie's manager lived upstairs from you guys? Yeah, downstairs. Downstairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but Bowie was uh, David was around a bit when my brother and I were little kids. I think he would give us little toys and stuff when he was kind of in and out of New York. So, yeah, <laughs> he was. <laughs> so it was a really interesting time and place to to grow up. Then uh, both both what your neighborhood looked like and what have you and. And you have this really these many diverse interests, as we just we just mentioned at the beginning, which I want to get into. Um, how did you find yourself um, like what was life growing up? Describe how how that idea of being creative came into your life. Like were your parents creative as well? They were. Yes. I mean, my, my father's an architect and my mother, although she was kind of, you know, she was an executive and, you know, worked in marketing. It was I mean, it was hard not to, we were constantly surrounded by creative folks from, from Sesame Street and, you know, whether it was the people who were working on the puppets or the music, or these were just the people that were around us. So it, it was a, a creative community. And, um, and like I say, growing up down the street from the Whitney, I spent a lot of time in the museum as a kid as well. Um, and it was just kind of a, a way of life that that felt very very normal <laughs> um how did that how did yeah. that affect your your interest your interest to to want to pursue something creative um well i mean i think that it, it's hard to kind of pin that down in some ways i think that in some ways it's just innate um it's just a part of who you are mm -hmm. and what you're you're drawn to um but but being in that kind of a community where there, it was just kind, kind of constantly being surrounded by creative folks. It's hard not to be, be drawn to that, 
that kind of world and, and work. You, you obviously the, you have a new uh, film, your first film coming out now, but, but you have done a lot of things before, uh, before this is national week. Uh, you I think the first way I've seen you describe yourself is, is DJ, like DJ being first in the line of mm-hmm. description. Tell me about that. How did music become such an integral part of your life? Well, I mean, music was always a part of my life from the get go. Music was always playing in the house and it was, you know, a diverse what selection kind of music, of yeah. music on re- rotation. I mean, I kind of, you know, for instance, my mom, who's from Barbados, like I would say that the thing that I, I connect with her most as a child is Simon and Garfunkel. Um, okay. And my dad, I remember him playing Cool in the Gang for us. So it was just kind of like <laughs> these <laughs> things that you wouldn't necessarily expect uh, from these folks. But um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of DJing, I got into DJing in college. I went to co- Amherst College in Massachusetts, and my freshman dorm housed the college radio station. And I just want I wanted to get involved. First started with the graveyard shift, where you could kind of play whatever you wanted. And um, so you grew up. You grew up with, classic old school DJ, where you were there was nothing was programmed. Yes. You were actually at the microphone deciding deciding what you were going to spin. Exactly, exactly. And all, the only calls I would get at that hour were from the local penitentiary collect <laughs> calls. <laughs> would you Would you accept them? Oh uh, no. <laughs> I think I was just too freaked out by like all the tasks that I had to do and getting queuing things up. And, you know, I didn't really have time for that, you know, and I was barely awake myself at two in the morning. But (laughs) what kind of music were people feeling at that time? Like what what kind of music were you spinning? What did you like? What were you into? Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, I was definitely through high school. I was a hip hop head. I mean, it's like the early 90s now. And uh, now is what we're talking about. And, you know, kind of golden age of of hip hop, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in fact, I um, did a, in, after I graduated from the graveyard shift, I did a, um, a show that was the hip hop countdown uh, with my friend, Scotty Rosenstein. <laughs> and, okay, shout um, out to Scotty Rosenstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, so, yeah, it was definitely, hip hop was like on heavy rotation for me at the time. Um, but that kind of, I, I moved to San Francisco after college and um, fell in with a, well, first fell in love. Well, I, I grew up dancing. I grew up, and that's also part of my, my love for music, where that came from. Um, but What kind I, of dance were you doing? Well, I grew up um, doing ballet and modern kind of traditional um, mediums. But I, uh, when I moved to San Francisco, I fell in, well, I kind of, I went to this show, Brazilian music, and there were these women there dancing samba. Hmm. And I was just so entranced by how they were able to move and what they were doing. And I just kind of kept going back to that club for about nine months before I actually could figure out how to, how to samba myself. (laughs) And, um, and yeah, I, I ended up marrying a Brazilian musician. We're no longer together. But he um, and I would go to his shows and kind of, you know, dance, but also like wanted to do something more and ended up. That's where I really started DJing, you know, in a club environment. And um, and when I say equatorial beats, that was the tagline I used back in my days as D 
DJ Felina, uh, which I've now I've since retired as DJ <laughs> Felina. But I um, yes would play. Yeah, Brazilian music was where I started uh, with DJ. Describe equatorial beats to me. Give me a give me a, a touch. Give me a touchstone. Or I don't know if you beatbox or not, but give me a, give me a touchstone <laughs> of what, what I'm thinking about. I mean, it started off with with Brazilian with samba. Really, mm-hmm. that was the the get go. So you know, um, and then it kind of branched out from there to you know different types of Brazilian music, um, mangi beats to Afro reggae to all kinds, and then from there it started you know, branching out, I mean, to all kinds of music from generally South America and, and Africa as well. So that, that was kind of the starting point. So that's why the equatorial beats tag, that's how that came to be. But, but now, you know, I DJ occasionally still, um, I've DJed some of the after parties for, for the film, um, at various festivals around the world. And, now I just play what I like. Right, right. What do you like now? What are you into now? Constraints. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's the thing. I, I My tastes are very broad. Um, okay. So, like... so, you. I mean, you might hear, I don't even know. Like, I don't know. SZA? Are you into SZA now? Like, she's everything? Oh, no, no. I tend to play, like, you know, music from, you know, I mean, not, not brand new music, I was going to say. I mean, like, okay. things I will play like afro um afrobeat music you okay. know yeah we're talking like fella Cootie, like that kind of thing to you know you might hear like fishbone in a set or prince or um i mean it really runs the gamut i don't even know where to start so um are we are, are they going to get you to are they going to get you to uh, are they going to get you to DJ a little bit while you're in town um, uh, promoting your new film? I don't think this I'm going to DJ this time around. I'm just going to enjoy and, and do a Q and A. But we will have some music at the the screening um, in that the National Wake, the one of the founders of National Wake, Ivan Katie, who lives in Miami, he's going to play some songs for us after the screening. Great. Uh, so clearly, your your career has always been interested in these cultural intersections and. This movie gets into one uh, one very big one, which is this idea of a, of a multiracial band in South Africa at a time where being being multiracial, doing something together was was illegal. It was in, in no uncertain terms illegal. Um, tell me about that that movement when you became aware of it, and, and and when did it become such an interest to you? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I found out about the band through another film called Punk in Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a film, that, a documentary that's about the idiom of funk in Southern Africa. And I, you know, was so taken with National Wake's music, with um, the incredible Super 8 uh, footage of them that was shot by actually our film's co-producer, Nadine Katie, okay. as well as another photographer named Robin Muir. And so I, I tracked down Ivan and he was living in L.A. at the time. And I flew out to um, L.A. to do a public radio piece about National Wake. Um, Shout out to public radio. Yes. <laughs> and um, and that was in 2013. Um, so that was kind of the very beginning of the process of making this film. Wow. So and you've been thinking about this topic for, for a decade now. Yes, exactly. I know. Suddenly it's a decade. <laughs> <laughs> I did finish you. it. I finished it, I think, like about eight and a half years in nine years in but yes it's been 
a full decade since I started. And, um, and I imagine that was, was there an element in that music that, that because you were, you were interested in samba music and you were talking about uh, music from, from Latin America. And so much of that music is influenced from, uh, you know, kind of Afro, Afro beats and what have you. Was that Mm -hmm. part of uh, like, was that a natural fit? Is that something that drew you in? Yes. I mean, I think that, but National Wakes Music is, um, I mean, we use the punk tagline for them. It's not Mm -hmm. entirely accurate because I wouldn't say not all of their music is punk. It draws on reggae. It draws on, um, you know, like I say, African, more traditional African rhythms. It's, um, and they were, their references were kind of their contemporaries in the UK, like the police or, you know, the clash, like these are the kinds of bands that they were listening to. And, um, so it's, I mean, I think their attitude was extremely punk. They, they, they I would be pressed to, to find another, to think of another act more punk than the national wake in terms of attitude, you know, just saying, you know, um, we're not going to do what the system's telling us to do, but, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of more of a rock, rock thing for sure. Rock project musically. Marissa, uh, we're speaking with Marissa Neff. She's a filmmaker and her debut film, This Is National Wake, is going to be playing uh, January 16th at the Miami Jewish Film Festival. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit of the, their music and then take a break. And we're going to come back and talk more about that very rebellious music. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias. We're speaking with Marissa Neff. She's a journalist, DJ, and filmmaker, and her debut film, This is National Wake, is playing at the Miami Jewish Film Festival. Marissa, when we took a break, we got to hear some of their great beats uh, coming out. Um, But what they did that was so uh, really interesting is that they created this this multiracial band during apartheid in South Africa. Take us to the a point in time of what they were doing and what it meant to do, to 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 make that statement, to make that kind of music together. Yeah, I mean, I will say that this was the making of this film was really an educational experience for me because I I grew up, you know, I was a kid in elementary school in the eighties. Um, grew up with a very cursory knowledge of what was happening in South Africa at that time. I I knew that there that apartheid was a thing. I knew that you know, there were boycotts against South Africa. And in my mind, that meant that black and white folks were completely separate. There was no mixing whatsoever. And that kind of lingered with me um, for some time after that. Um, And in seeing this footage of National Wake, of them getting up on stage together, black, both black and white members of the band getting up on stage together in defiance to the apartheid system, seeing their black and white fans in this footage, dancing together, flirting with one another. It just kind of blew my mind away in terms of what I thought was possible in that time. And that's, you know, a big part of what intrigued me about this band and drew me to do this project. Um, How much of it it was, yeah. No, I was going to say how much of it was seeing what was happening there versus contrasted with, say, you know, 
growing up in your home because I, I understand as we were saying your mom is from Barbados and your your dad is Russian and Jewish background like they were they were racially mixed so I'm, I'm curious like you know that seems that you grew up with something so normal like that and then thinking of these this all these people being uh, you know victimized for uh, just being being together to make music mm-hmm. yeah I mean it I, I mean I think that obviously there are obvious reasons why I was drawn to this project. Sometimes the way I think about it, I'm like, did this, did I choose this project or this, did this project choose me? Hmm. Um, and I mean, like I say, I mean, it was just so, so amazing to see what they were doing, what, how they were subverting the system, how they were able to find cracks within the system and exploit them to their advantage to create the world that they wanted to see. It was just so inspiring to me. And really kind of kept me going with this project for, for as long as for, like I said, eight, nine years. And um, I did not set out intending to make a feature documentary about them. Actually, I, I set out initially, I was working on a public a PBS show um, called soundtracks music without borders. And it was a show about the intersection between music and politics. Hmm. Um, so this seemed like a perfect fit for that show. I imagined doing a, and it was a news magazine style show, kind of like 60 minutes. So I imagined doing a 15 minute segment on this band where, you know, I'd kind of be on camera interviewing people and kind of just relaying like what a cool thing this was. And once I delved into this, the band and their story and, and got to understand things a little more and understand how much more nuanced it was, I realized that it was a way more complicated story than 15 minutes could do justice to and um, just kind of started following it from there and let it let it take shape as it did. You had been following uh, these subjects a little bit, these uh, this idea of, of where cultures connect. You mentioned um, uh, producing this uh, Music Without Borders. You you went to Cuba to see where the Cuban danzón music overlapped with uh, ragtime music, as, as I heard, you know, uh, kind of. Uh, Louisiana jazz. Tell me about that, that, about how that you saw those, those cultures intersect. Yeah. I mean, I essentially um, went with the the preservation hall band um, when they were um, going to Cuba to, to connect with musicians there. And, and tell me about preservation hall. What, what is it that they do that's so special? Sorry. They are a, um, an institution in, in new Orleans, Mm -hmm. new Orleans jazz. Um, both a structure and a, a collective of musicians that, um, yeah, they play traditional New Orleans jazz and have for, for many, many years now. And um, so they they kind of, they actually went to, to Havana to, to film a documentary about this. Um, and I followed along to do a public radio piece about it. <laughs> and um, that was exciting. It was thrilling. It was really exciting to see where they were discovering these these connections and um, and yeah, just uncovering things that that were there all along, but had kind of been forgotten in some ways. And you hear in that piece, uh, you, uh, folks can find it online. It's the PBS soundtracks, Music Without Borders, um, th- where they the musicians connect uh, ragtime and the the Cuban danzón. I want to say is what it Danzon. was. 
And uh, exactly. And, and and to hear them make that connection is 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 a really is a really beautiful thing. You you're able to kind of kind of trace trace this dotted line from from Cuba to Louisiana. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. And and so, how did something like that, doing working on something like that, uh, meantime, you know, you're you're thinking about um, South Africa, like this band and what they did in South Africa. Can you can you put into context? what um, National Wake did uh, in South Africa during this whole apartheid movement? Were people listening to their music? Was it part of those, what you mentioned, you know, cracks in the system? Mm -hmm. I mean, they, by dint of being this kind of illegal musical act, they, they, you know, had to be part, they were part of an underground scene. They were not part of the mainstream. Hmm. Um, So they were playing kind of underground clubs, you know, throughout Johannesburg, in Soweto, and farther afield as well. Um, they would go, you know, travel to Swaziland sometimes. And so they had to kind of create their own circuit within, you know, the, the confines of what, what was allowable at that time. Um, they also lived together, which was totally illegal. And, um, but that was really the only way that this project could flourish and, and survive in that context, because they, you know, it's too dangerous for, you know, Ivan, essentially how the band came together was that Mike Labisi, who also was part of the initial lineup of the band, he was this black guy from mm-hmm. Soweto who kind of didn't didn't abide by the the con constraints of the apartheid system. He just didn't didn't pay attention to it. There are certain, you know, elements of his his background that, you know, you know, illuminate why that that was, but he just grew up just not not paying attention to what was you know what he was supposed to do, and um, so he would wander around the white neighborhoods. And you know, I say like I mentioned before that my my picture of South Africa was that whites and blacks were completely separate, and of course that's not possible in practice. Um, the white power structure needed a black workforce nearby mm-hmm. to work in industry, to work in their homes, to to you know, tend to their gardens, etc. So they constructed Soweto, which is the southwestern townships, in order to have this workforce near enough to Johannesburg. Um, so, so it was allowable to be around. You know, if you were black, it was okay to be in white areas if you had the papers, if you had a reason, you know, the, to be there. So Mike wandered into this kind of hippie white area where where kids from the local university were living mm-hmm. and or 20 somethings and uh Ivan was living in one of those houses and Mike wandered in one day I think he he kind of had befriended someone else who was living in the house and he connected with Ivan Katie and they became fast friends and started kind of jamming together and Ivan mentioned that he wanted to start a band and Mike said hey I know a couple of guys from Soweto Gary and Punkakosa um, why don't I bring them over to jam and see how it goes? So, and, there, so there was a you know. natural curiosity between those mm-hmm. between those two between those two folks, who uh, you know obviously are the the laws of of apartheid South Africa at the time are saying that no, you must be apart. But they had a natural mm-hmm. not just curiosity about each other, but about they must have had they must have met uh, on the musical score, so to speak. They must have uh, met over music as well too. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's what I think was so one of the many things that's so special about National Wake is that I feel like it was a very 
organic or at least as organic as possible within that context um, meeting yeah. and coming together of, of musicians and, you know, through the, their love of, you know, music, through their, their shared, you know, artistry. And so I think that in that way, it was kind of as pure and as untainted as you can get within that context. And we should talk about that context because that meant that performing together and then you said they later lived together. This was this was this was illegal in South Africa. Mm-hmm. What? How did yeah. that manifest yeah. itself? Were they did they did they risk being arrested when they performed? And, and yes. Oh, there was constant risk of arrest. People were arrested from from the house for not having the right papers. For you know, essentially, um, Gary and Mike, uh, Gary and Panka moved into the house and brought along kind of these proteges from Soweto, and um, so it became this like mixed race house immediately that. And um, yeah, the house was raided constantly. The, co- the police were constantly harassing them and they would go to shows and, you know, for instance, there was one show that's mentioned that Ivan talks about in, in the, the film where the, the booker had booked the band, knew what they were, <laughs> was fine with it, thought it was cool. Um, hmm. They show up at the gig. The owner is there who's not the booker and was like, I'm going to shoot you guys if you go on my stage. Oh, my God. And Yeah. And um, so they go on stage. To, to, but Ivan's thinking the whole time, is this guy going to actually shoot us? I don't know. <laughs> That's in the back of his mind the whole time. Were there... Yeah, I mean, toward the end of their tenure, they were raided. Their house was being raided two to three times a day. Wow. That's incredible. Were these shows, were the shows raided? The show, there, no, I think that the... The shows were not rated for some reason, hmm. um, but I think, but it was more about their kind of like they're living together and this was raising suspicion in this white neighborhood. Oh, because they were playing in white neighborhoods. Oh, they were playing in white clubs and black clubs and, you know, colored quote unquote clubs. Right. They, right. Yeah. And and so it was a it was an, an act of defiance all around by the club owners, by the musicians, by exactly. the people attend the people attending to say you know to exactly. be part of this. Yes. And so this this becomes then the the crux of your film. Uh, this is National Wake, uh, which is playing at the Miami Jewish Film Festival on January sixteenth. Uh, what do you hope that folks take away from this? I mean, uh, you've spent a lot of time, you spent the better part of the last decade thinking about this band and what it meant and uh, racial politics. What do you hope that folks take away? I mean, essentially, I, I hope that people take away from National League what I take away from them, which is that, you know, you that you should make every attempt to, to create the world that you want to see. I mean, they, or that you want to live in. They... We're creating this in a total dystopia, you know, yeah. yet they were able to create this, not only this scene at their shows, but within their house as well, which was welcoming to, to everyone who was open to, to what they were doing in their kind of mission. Um, so it was just kind of, it felt like, you know, the, the world was coming. They were, I don't know, the world was coming to them and that they were creating this environment because they, I mean, that was the thing, like they were, because of the boycotts and all of these things, they were, they felt very cut off from the rest of the world. And they just wanted to feel a part of the rest of the world. So they, they kind of created it within their own home, within their sanctuary. Were they, were they able to do that? 
Did they did their music they did were. their did their Yes. No, I mean I think that they had they had people from, you know, all over the world kind of coming in and out of of their house, you know, just because people knew that that was something that, that was a place that was a safe haven. And how did that help them outside of South Africa? Were they able to tour ever outside? Would they were they able to kind of take this message uh, beyond the border, so to speak? No, I mean that that's one thing that is kind of the the at the crux of their story as well. They were not a, ever able to to break through and leave. Um, the financial support wasn't there. They did get signed to WIA Records, which was Warner Electra Atlantic Records, and. They, they released this incredible album, um, which was then re-released on Light in the Attic Records, uh, this wonderful boutique label out of L.A. Um, and that was kind of part of what, what got me involved in the story in 2013. When I went to interview Ivan for this public radio piece, I found out that their album was going to be re-released later that year. And I was like, OK, I'll just follow this story. Um, but they, yeah, they got a pressing of their 1981 original album in the UK through WIA as well. Um, but, you know, it was kind of shut down by the government. And, and um, I mean, one thing that did happen in this kind of re- is this incredible story about kind of the archival, you know, the, the, the yeah, my kind of archival diving through this, hmm. this project, um, which was that they, um, yeah, I had heard tale that they, that John Peel, who was a ubiquitous, you know, incredibly well-known, incredibly influential DJ on the BBC, okay. um, who got broke Bowie and all these different acts. Okay. Um, he, yeah, I had heard that he played National Wake on his show and that he played their album. And I was like, huh, okay, well, that's cool. I'll try to find that, uh, that tape. And I reached out to the BBC. They did not have the tape. Um, and they said, okay, we'll go to our written archives out, you know, an hour outside of London and look through John Peel's playlists. And I, I'm like, okay, so I go do that. Oh my gosh. For a couple of days. This is a, this is a true, through. yeah, Neil <laughs> in a haystack, story. right? <laughs> um, so I'm scrolling, you know, scrolling through the microfilm reader for a couple of days, kind of like falling asleep, all of John Peel's playlists from 1981. And nodding off, and finally one day I'm like, I wake up and there's National Wake written right in front of me on the microfilm machine. So I'm like, okay, this actually happened. Um, I still don't have the tape, but I have you know proof that it actually happened. This confirmation and that their finally, music, their music made it outside of South Africa and was broadcast exactly. by one of these the biggest broadcasters in Europe. Yeah, and uh, but then finally I was able to track down the guy who had gotten the hit their record to. John Peel, who was this British accountant, Rob Matthews, who he had somehow, you know, he was sent to South Africa to work on assignment and was so dismayed by the scene there and kind of fell in with National League and, and became a huge fan of theirs. And and um, when he was went back to the UK, he brought two of their records with him, kept one, you know, smuggled both of them out, kept hmm. one, got the other one to John Peel and John Peel played it on his show. And when I reached out to him, you know, 40 years later, he was like, oh, yeah, I, I recorded that show on cassette tape. I have that right oh here. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my and God. He, yeah, he recorded it on cassette and kept it for 40 years. And that's how and that is actually in 
the the film and actually I, you played it at the beginning at the top of the the show so um <laughs> and, so yes, and we, and we they, have that because heard. of we have that because <laughs> of your your homework and your uh, your diligent work on this film. Uh, uh, we're going to take a little break. Uh, we're speaking with Marissa Neff. She's a filmmaker, and her debut film, uh, This Is National Wake, a documentary uh, of a multicultural, uh, multiracial band in South Africa during apartheid playing at the Jewish Film Festival in Miami. We'll be back in a minute and talk with her. You're listening to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias, and our guest today is Marissa Neff. She's a filmmaker, and her first feature documentary, This is National Wake, is playing at the Miami Jewish Film Festival. Marissa, when we took a break, we were talking about National Wake's music uh, really being uh, going against the grain, going against the system, uh, and then finally making its way outside the country. It was played uh, uh, overseas. It was played in Europe. Um and I'm curious what their music did to spark other musicians and influence other music. Can you talk about that a little bit? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I. It's funny because I think that National Wake. I'm. It's my hope that that this film will help give them their due. But they, you know, I they didn't really their album didn't have the impact that I I think it should have. Hmm. Um, I think that in part because they were shut down by by the apartheid system, by the apartheid government, um, in part because they didn't have the resources to get out of the country and, you know, get gain a wider audience. Um, so I think that it was really, their influence was really stunted in a, in a big way. And, um, and I know that there, there are musicians out there who are very influenced them, but I think they're kind of people who, who, you know, discovered them, you know, I don't know. They're, they're definitely not as many people, not as many musicians as I think should be influenced by them out but, there. But there is this so. familiarity in their music in the sense that it's, uh, you know, there's this reggae feel, there's a ska feel, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it feels like it's, um, like it's flexing between these different genres that, that seems like things that we've heard, like with it, that feels like it's uh, a lot of yes. music that we've heard now, you know? Yes. No, I, I, I agree. Um, but I think that, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think they haven't gotten their due. Um, so that's why I hope as many people see the film and buy their album. It's still, you know, it's available through Light in the Attic Records. Um, it's, the LP is this gorgeous two, two disc, um, you know, double fold kind of with a beautiful booklet inside about the band as well. Um, so highly recommend you know, picking that up if you can. And what's what's the name of that album? That is, um, sorry, I have it. It's it's just National Wake, but just it's um, kind of Walk in Africa. Yeah, Walk in Africa. The, the, yeah. Now your the your documentary, your first documentary, is playing at the uh, Miami Jewish Film Festival. Talk to us about the Jewish roots of this band. Um, mm. I understand that that one of the founding members is is Jewish. Yes. Yeah, Ivan Katie, who's kind of the main protagonist of the film and will be at the screening along with me and um, Nadine Katie will be there as well. She is, you know, co-producer of the film. She was part of the the story as well and uh, lived with the band and, is, you know, was integral to, to the band's story. 
So, um, but yeah, Ivan, I mean, he, um, like most South Jews in South Africa, he, he comes from um, Lithuanian Jewish heritage and he, um, his family escaped Lithuania and fled to, to South Africa where, you know, they kind of had a, a fraught, fraught history. He grew up very poor in kind of the Jewish quarters mm-hmm. of, of Johannesburg. And um, then I think his, you know, and, and we're outcasts in, in certain ways as well. I mean, it's just, um, it's a fraught history. Um, and I think that the fact that his, his family, you know, was had to had to leave their homeland and flee to another another continent and um you know to to flee persecution i think that gave ivan a certain empathy and um that maybe some of his peers lacked um so i, I it's no surprise to me that he ended up creating national wake along with gary and Poncacosa and mike labisi as well and um yeah, it's just, it makes complete sense to me, you know, just also from knowing him all these years. Um, I think that that influenced his his path hugely. Um, yeah. I, I'm curious, when you started looking into the band, I, like you said, they, they maybe didn't have the, the influence that, that they could have from the beginning, although they're, now their album has been has been re-released and it's available. Was, when you reached out to Ivan, Katie, was he was he surprised that, that you know, there was someone who was, who had noticed what they had done with with music and and at the time that they had done it and, and wanted to do what you did, which is uh, create a, a feature length documentary on them. Yeah, I mean, well, I, like I said before, it was a very like organic process toward this becoming a feature length documentary. It wasn't. I didn't set out to to do that initially, and um, I mean, I think that Ivan, he, I mean, I, he also feels like the band never got its due and and there's regret around that sometimes, you know? Um, And I think that he, I don't know. I mean, I think that he had all, but I mean, also when I did reach out unbeknownst to me, the, the band, the album, you know, re-release was already in the works. And um, so he had already connected with Matthew Sullivan, who heads up light in the attic records and, that actually happened around a searching for Sugar Man screening because that the label Light in the Attic they also re-released Rodriguez's music, um, and Ivan went to a screening of that film, and he connected with Matt Sullivan there and said, "Okay, like this, yeah, this I I knew of Rod- Rodriguez's music. I was a huge fan. Serendipity. Um, but I also, yeah, exactly. I was also in a very interesting band that you might be interested in." <laughs> And um, and they were both living in L.A. at the time. And Ivan connected with him and sent him the music. And lo and behold, you know, of course, Matt was into the music and ended up putting together this beautiful album um, and remastering the music. And yeah. Well, you you mentioned one of the founding members, uh, Ivan Katie, is, is going to be at the, the Jewish Film Festival uh, when the, the movie yes. shows here. Uh, tell me about what some of the other, what some of the band members are doing now, the founding members, and what are they doing these days? Well, I mean, that's kind of uh, one of the sad parts of the story. There are many sad parts of the story, honestly, and uh, most of the band members are, dece- are deceased. Mm. Um, Gary Punka died years before I started working on the project. Uh, I did get the chance to meet Mike Libisi, 
Um, but he, he also has died since, since I started on the project. Um, and there's only one other member of National Lake that, that's still alive, and that's Steve Money. And he lives in Prague these days. Um, and uh, yeah, and I've connected with him multiple occasions, fortunately. But, but um, Ivan is the sole surviving founder of the band, um, which is very sad. And, and, you know, I wish that I'd been able to connect with the other band, band members um, before they died. And, and it, in fact, it was a huge that was kind of one of the big struggles of, of making this film, honestly, was was that these band members were deceased that, you know, and especially that the, these black band members were deceased before right. I could meet them. Um, and it was a struggle to kind of figure out ways of amplifying their voices um, within that context. And, um, you know, I, I did so as best I could with, you know, interviewing people that were close to them and lived in the house and came from Soweto to that with them. To, to live in the National Wake House, um, as well as finding archival um, footage and audio of them. I found some archival um, radio, you know, audio of a, a radio interview that Punka did hmm. in Ireland in 1994. So we hear that in the film. We never hear Gary's voice outside of the music, but I was able to connect with a filmmaker in South Africa in Johannesburg named uh, Lungalom Tambo, who, who shot this beautiful footage of Gary playing the piano right before he left. Um, Gary was this virtuosic musician uh, right before he died. I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, And um, in fact, this, this filmmaker, he had intended to make a a film just about Gary because Gary's a fascinating figure suffered from mental illness. Um, And he, he filmed this beautiful improvisational piano piece that, that Gary did. and, And that plays toward the end of the film. Um, and it's this very poignant moment in the film. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think that we do hear Gary, Gary's voice, even though he's not talking, um, just through his piano playing. Marissa, what, what kept you going all these years? Even as, like you said, only one man, band member remained uh, who clearly has a love for it. It was one of the, found, the founding members. But what kept you going to bring this movie to conclusion? Yeah, it's a, it, that is a very interesting question because it it's difficult as a as a first time filmmaker. Um, you, I mean, I was a, fortunately able to to get some grants and institutional support from places like ITBS and a a film group that you know exec produced the film like XTR and um, in fact the New York Women's Fund for for film and music and television they they fund gave the the film a grant as well. Um, but you know, it's, 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 it's hard. It's hard. And, um, and I had a kid actually in, in the midst of making the film as well. Oh so, my God. Congratulations. There were t- <laughs> Thanks. He's five now. <laughs> 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 Not a baby anymore. Uh, um, but, but yeah, the, the process definitely ebbed and flowed. Um, I would say, I'm, I mean, my, my partner, my, my life partner, Josh Jelly Shapiro, he came on as a producer and kind of, I would say that he was the one who gave me the the nudging when I needed it, when I need, when I was feeling kind of like, oh my God, I don't know if I can, I can finish this. Um, it's, you know, for various reasons, you know, it just was, you feel discouraged through the process of working on something for that long. And, um, 
but here it but is I, and it's in its finished form and and yes. you've been able to like it it's been in in your in your child's life ever since he was born at this point exactly yeah so it's like this <laughs> yeah, thing that's he's, part he's, of yeah no he'll see a picture of national lake and he'll be like that's mama's movie <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah so that's the norm for him so <laughs> so tell it kind it, of all comes full circle tell us what's next for you then as we wrap up here today Yes, um, I am starting to work on a project. Um, the guys who, the kind of outfit that did visual effects for, for the film, um, they're out of London, this outfit called Capture. And they are bringing me on to direct a project about reggae music and how it kind of left Jamaica and went to the UK and then the world and has been so influential since then. So, well, this sounds so, yeah. like something uh, directly uh, up your alley following this movie. Uh, Marissa, <laughs> <You> think? <laughs> we've been speaking with Marissa Neff. She's a filmmaker, and her debut film, This is National Wake, will be playing at the Miami Jewish Film Festival on January 16th uh, at O Cinema in South Beach. You can find more info on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Thank you, Marissa. We're going to. You, we're going to listen to their music now. Uh, this is National. This is Wake of the Nation by the South African punk band National Wake. Thanks again, Marissa. Thank you. And that's Sundial for Tuesday, January 10th. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Lisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor, and our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Merritt is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, film producer Rico James. He's directing a documentary about a Wynwood Street artist who died in 2016. The artist called himself Nobody and was a familiar face in the neighborhood, as was his art. Rico started the documentary while Nobody was alive and picked up the project after his death. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.